This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. I'm Kruti Joshi, the Deputy Editor at Media Week. And today I have with me Jamie Angus, the Deputy Director of BBC World Service Group and the Editorial Director of BBC Global News Limited. Seems like a mouthful of a title, Jamie, but welcome to Australia. It is. Thank you very much. You just flew in here about just over 24 hours ago. Sydney's given you a good welcome, hasn't it? I did. It's pouring with rain and not very warm, so I feel right at home here. Thank you. (laughs) I bet that's not what what, what you were looking for. For when exactly. you flew yeah, in, no, it's but... nice. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were one of the rare people yeah. in here to say that that it's lovely. It's <laughs> lovely. I feel right at home. But you've got two um, titles under your belt right now. So what exactly does that involve doing? So we have a commercial news company. BBC Global News Limited is a commercial company that um, that runs our international news website in English and the BBC World News Channel. And obviously, both those are commercial operations. You know, we we make money from advertising and some distribution revenue on the TV. Channel, um, and so I'm as the editorial director of that operation. I'm responsible for everything that goes out on our international TV news channel and uh, our international facing website. But also, more widely, the BBC World Service Group uh, runs all of the BBC's activities, news activities outside the UK. And so, when people think of World Service Radio and kind of brands they might be more familiar with, so you hear some of that on the ABC mm-hmm. Radio Services overnight here in Australia. Uh, so we make those. World Service products, both in English and in multiple foreign languages. So we, we, we make news services in 31 other languages other than English, and it's going to rise to 40 languages because of some new investment uh, we're making in uh, BBC World Service. So that's a kind of huge international operation, in, as I say, in multiple languages. And, uh, you know, we have a, the BBC has a mission to provide international news all around the world, particularly to audiences who need access, you know, who don't have access of their own in their own markets. Now, obviously, Australia is a really mature media market, right? And so here we're one of a number of international players in this market. And Australians have got access to really good international news and national news from a number of sources. But for other world service groups, you know, we do, you know, Burmese language news for Burma. We're launching a Korean language service for North Korea. You know, part of our mission is to take in quality international news into markets where it isn't available at all let alone there being a decent choice. Now, something that just caught my attention was you're about to produce a Korean news service for North Korea. That's, that's a nice marketplace to get into, especially where it's so closed off in terms of you know, journalism. So how did you, how did you manage that? So the, the World Service has always had this mission to go to what we call news need audience, audiences of news need and go to places where uh, there is no access to, to, to free news and to try and get news to, to those audiences. And recently the BBC has a significant new investment of, uh, it's an investment of government funding actually in extending our range of language services. So we're opening 11 new language services and those are some Indian regional languages regional languages in Nigeria to Ethiopian language services. Mm. Uh, One of the new services is Korean for North Korea. And that is a, a really important one to us because if you, if you like, North Korea is the ultimate news need audience and it's a very, very hard audience to access because obviously we can't go into North Korea and operate freely there. Uh, and like most international broadcasters, we're only very occasionally let into North Korea and can operate under very restrictive uh, practices. So just the mechanics of getting news into North Korea is going to be really complicated as and of itself. But there are ways we think we can do that. 
and uh, you know the BBC's been tasked with uh, with with providing this and given some investment to do it. So we're really excited about it because it's very it's absolutely kind of our public service mission 101. You know that we we have to go to difficult in, to difficult markets and and make the news available. But of course it's non-commercial. So these these are world serviced activities. We're not doing it to make money. We're doing it because it's our public service mission. Sure. And but you did mention earlier that um, you do have some commercial responsibilities in in terms of bringing in money can you go a little bit into that yeah of course so we do run a commercial um we do run a commercial company for our international tv channel the world news channel and the international english language news website so those are the two main platforms where we run a a pretty much a uh, what you would recognize as a standard commercial operation because historically the bbc hasn't been funded you know by the government or by the license fee pair in the uk to provide those platforms so we've always had a commercial company that we have to make money out of those services in order to provide them but i think that's good for the bbc because although we are at heart a a public service uh, uh, broadcaster in the UK Mm. we have a great uh, stable funding base from UK license fee payers who pay an annual license to 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 use all the BBC services but it's good for the BBC I think to have a commercial company because of course outside the BBC uh, outside of the UK commercial is the normal you know it's the universal paradigm and actually international audiences are perfectly comfortable consuming commercial services they're used to seeing advertising next to quality news it's not a sort of there's no dissonance about that for for international audiences I think it is good for the BBC in a language like English, where it is a really, you know, it's a big universal platform for us. There's lots of competition. It's fine for us to operate in that commercial space. It's actually good for the BBC that we do that. Sure. So, I mean, BBC News has a bit of a presence in Australia in terms of your digital operation. How is that working out for you when it comes to uh, monetizing on your operations here? Yeah, so we do. We have, a, uh, I would say, a small and you know modest investment in this market. But actually, there's so much international news already on the on the BBC News website that what we're what we're doing is curating that specifically for an audi- Australian audience and writing a small amount of specifically bespoke Australian content. It's only necessarily a small amount because actually we don't see ourselves as particularly in competition with. The Australian domestic markets mm. and indeed an operation like The Guardian which is making quite a significant investment in Australian content for Australia. That's not really our, 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 our pitch in Australia. Uh, here we want to kind of curate an international uh, English language news website that majors on international news coverage and so we find that audiences in Australia are really valuing coming to the BBC News website because it has unparalleled quality in coverage of things like Donald Trump and uh, you know, U.S. politics, U.K. politics, what's going on in Britain, with the, both with the general election and indeed the, the rather more serious um, recent wave of attacks we've had in the U.K., other British news, we know there's a sort of um, entente between certain sections of the Australian audiences in the UK, either through kind of family or historical ties. But but basically the core of the proposition is the quality international news curated for Australia. And commercially, you know, we, we do what other sites do. We're selling a certain amount of kind of programmatic advertising around the site, but we also have a really important branded content uh, operation down here. So the BBC StoryWorks team uh, are working really effectively in 
in the Australian market to do bespoke uh, branded content, partnered content that uh, we can provide. You know, we feel the BBC values and the, the, the fact that the BBC is the most trusted international news broadcaster is a really good fit for commercial partners who want to partner with us to make branded content. And, you know, that's, again, something that, that we do quite extensively in our business and, and quite right too. Right. So you just mentioned that, you know, BBC's investment in the local market here is quite modest. But do you, and it serves a purpose for, for the aims that you want out of Australia right now. But do you reckon, is there ever a stage where you'd want a full-fledged editorial team here like The Guardian has? I think we'd like to have more, full, more, more investment in all territories. But as I say we are because we are a commercial company in, on this particular platform. We can invest where we can, we invest where we see a, like a really specific uh, business return as well. Because obviously, Australia is a really mature market, right? Yeah. And there's there's not a kind of deficit of international news in this market. So <laughs> we w- we want to put our, our our news here in an accessible way for Australians, but we're doing so with a primarily commercial objective. So we got a kind of commercial investment here that's about right for the level of return that we can make and i think the guardian are operating on a on a very different model down here which is that they've had they've had some philanthropic money i believe go into their operation and they've made a, a, a very significant investment down here and doing much more kind of specific tailored news for australia and the australian market at the moment we don't see a lot of reason for us to get into a direct competition with that because i don't think we're in a position to make an investment that would make us competitive in that space we want to compete in in the international news space where we think we've got a much more credible offer than any of the competition and actually the evidence we see from australian audiences is that you know they agree with us we've carved out a really good business down here and a really good audience segment of people who understand that when big international news happens they're probably going to turn to either the BBC World News Channel or to the English language website because our coverage is better than the competitor set. Sure. Now, Jamie, you haven't always been on the executive side of things. You um, were on the other side of the fence being a journalist yourself. You joined the BBC in 1999 as a researcher for BBC Radio 4's flagship current affair program today. And then I think you served later, like you said, as an editor for that program as well. So, when you compare how the world in terms of journalism for radio and online's changed, what are some of the most notice, noticeable changes that you would say have happened in that time? That's a really good question. Uh, I think the kind of advent of digital news, uh, both in how news is published on digital platforms and how news is gathered in the digital age has been the single transformational event in our industry since I first started working in it in 1999 and you know when I was when I was first doing the Today program it's the flagship radio show in the UK in in 99 you know we would literally open letters from members of the audience and then read them out once a week in a letter (laughs) slot and when you look back now and you think you have constant interactivity in real time with audiences all around the world on the international platforms but also that you can gather news both your own journalists gather news but also members of the public gather news for you in real time in a digital space so actually if you think of a you know very serious story like the recent um, the recent terrible uh, attacks in London that we're constantly being kind of sent video that's been gathered by members of the public we're being sent stills and video and information and tips in the digital space almost without us having to solicit 
elicit that that information. That's really changed the way we make our news. Uh, it's changed the way we have to evaluate the information that we received, and it's also changed the way and that we publish news and the formats in which we publish it. So, you know, again, when I started in the industry, you were basically looking at radio reports and you know the two-minute TV package. We had a, a, an embryonic website in 1999, but no more than that. Now, as a news organisation, digital is at the heart of everything we do. We're a digital-first news gatherer and a digital-first publisher. And that's transformed the way we work as well as the nature of the content that we publish. Mm. And, and, and particularly because we have to constantly update and change the formats that we publish in in response to new emerging platforms like, you know, Facebook and Snapchat and, you know, the, how, how news organizations interact with third parties who publish their content for them. Sure. I mean, like being on the journalist side of things, you know, uh, at least in Australia, there have been a lot of cost-cutting exercises that a lot of media organizations have done and journalists have gone out and spoken out about it. So as a journalist, um, people think, uh, journalists think, you know, executives don't get where they're coming from. Executives think that journalists don't get where they're coming from. Now, for some, someone who's gone from journalism to exec- <laughs> to being in that executive position... I, I still think of myself as a journalist. I hate to say it, yeah. <laughs> a manager and a journalist, yeah. <laughs> oh, what has been the toughest thing about, uh, you know, going on to the other side of the job? What, what, did, uh, what kind of myths have been dispelled? You know, I actually think I, I'm, I, I think it takes a slightly different view. I think you know, journalists always you know journalists always like to complain about conditions on the, you know <laughs> the conditions on the shop floor and the nature of what they do. Of course, we do, uh, but you know, it's the the job of management and uh, and news executives to to be able to sort of see right across the piece and look very broadly at what audiences want, about what platforms and what methods they want the news to be consumed in, and to kind of help the journalists who work in our teams to to be trained to that to be skilled to that and to, to, to deliver against that. And I think actually when I think about our news journalists who are working day to day, they're as, as interested as their managers actually in how, how the news gets to new audiences, to audiences who want to consume the news in different ways. So I don't, quite, I don't really sort of see that tension so much. But I think we're, we're all of us struggling with the same thing, which is that um, our, uh, the sort of traditional proprietary distribution model where a, a big news organisation would control all the methods of distribution of its own news are really really breaking down and in a sense that's a good thing because it leads to it means we are growing news audiences people are consuming news on social media and digital platforms which they wouldn't have actively gone out and sought out but the fact that it appears in a social feed or something they then think oh actually that looks interesting and engaging and I'll consume it so in that extent it's good news but it poses huge challenges for our industry because it removes the element of control and curation over you know wh- how your news is curated what it appears against you no longer control who it goes to you don't necessarily have total visibility on who those audiences mm. are because you're distributing it via third parties and you know that is a commercial challenge for commercial news providers because they have to find a, a, a model that you know shares revenues appropriately but it's also a, a sort of editorial challenge because you don't have complete control over how you put out the news and i think that's been a really big shift for us and one we're all wrestling with right sure uh big big news stories coming out of the uk in 
the last two weeks, let's say, the Manchester bombing, the London Bridge attack. Now, tomorrow, the general election. Now, you were previously the editor, like I mentioned earlier, of BBC Radio 4's uh, current affair program today. You've covered the 2015 UK general elections, the Scottish independence referendum, as well as the EU referendum. Is it kind of frustrating that you're not involved as much in the, you know, probably the most talked about election in recent times yeah no. well actually do you know what? at one level i'm really enjoying it because i'm just enjoying consuming uh, our uk news coverage as a consumer rather than an active editor and and curator if you like so i'm not quite in the eye of the storm of the uk coverage in the way that i was in the previous we had a general election just two years ago right um so actually, I'm quite enjoying that. It feels very different for me. And I can sort of choose to consume some bits of the coverage and not others. So <laughs> actually, you know, I watched uh, I watched a bit of the, uh, the special TV debate. So we put on these question time specials where members of the public could quiz Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. And we actually distributed that on the World News Channel internationally. So we put that out all around the world. Because the, even though we thought, OK, some of this will be a bit up close for international audiences, the fact that the BBC hosted this he- headline event where both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn were quizzed by the public together, although I'm afraid they wouldn't debate each other. So that was their (laughs) choice and not ours. That felt like enough of an event to share it with international audiences around the world. And indeed, on the TV channel and on the website, in fact, we will stream on the website the the general election special coverage, uh, in which will be Friday afternoon here in Australia. So I don't know when the podcast goes out, but if it goes out before then, you'll be able to watch the results come in live on Friday afternoon onwards. Sure, I mean, you're still the editorial director of BBC Global News Limited, so if you see something that's amiss, are you able to bring up the editor of a certain programme and go, yo, you can do it this way? Yeah, I'm allowed to do that. Uh, I mean, I think I have sort of ultimate responsibility for all our editorial output. So, And a lot of that, as I say, is quite strategic stuff. A lot of my work is you know, things to do with ad, 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 advertising compliance and, you know, w- whether we run specific adverts or advertising campaigns. Uh, the commercial side of that is very important to me. But at the heart, I'll always be an output editor. I, you know, I think someone has to be the, 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 the editor-in-chief for the output. But I'm really... Uh, we're very, very lucky that the teams who work day to day, you know, our, our channel operation, our TV channel operation in London has got incredibly skilled and experienced journalists leading it. And broadly, uh, they, they know really well what they're doing. And if I occasionally ring up and ask them to do something, they, they listen politely and generally they might do what I say, but not necessarily. <laughs> so um, it's, quite, um, it, it's quite a different role to the role I did before because, um, as I say, we've got a really well-established and very experienced team actually outputting the the news website and the TV news channel, and the, those people really know what they're doing. So um, it's it's I'm able to work more strategically on how we grow our business, uh, on how in markets like Australia we you know we, we we make sure that we make the right commercial returns on the the editorial work we do, and how we continue to engage audiences who want to come to us because they trust the BBC News brand. So come the general election day on eighth of June, you. You'll definitely not be a complete consumer. You'll still be wearing your editorial director cap, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're doing a few public events. We, we, we're doing a, a, an event down in um, uh, down in Melbourne with with some you know with some journalists and politicians and opinion formers, sort of watching the BBC output and doing a bit of chat around that. And um, I'll just be yeah, I really will be consuming it as an as an avid viewer because I just don't know what the result is going to be. I mean, I think one of the interesting points about this election is that. Uh, Theresa May, the current Prime Minister, went into the campaign with a very well-established 
poll lead. Uh, and that led people to feel that the election was going to go one particular way. But the polls, some of the polls, have really narrowed in recent weeks. But there is now an enormous spread of polling. So she does have a small lead in almost all polls, but that lead ranges between one point and 12 points, which suggests that there's some problem with the UK polling model. It's not reflecting particularly accurately or uniformly across the piece what people's voting intentions are. And that makes the outcome of the election very unpredictable and very uncertain. So I think, well, you know, just genuinely as a news consumer, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm really, really interested to see the results come in on BBC News. Is it something that you're going to stay awake for overnight? Well, I don't really. This is the great thing about being in Australia is I don't even have to stay up all night. So I think the results will start <laughs> coming in about sort of nine ten o'clock in the morning and they will continue to come through for about 10 hours after that but the basic shape of the result will be clear i would have thought by lunchtime on friday oh that's you're, <laughs> you're at the right place at the yeah, right exactly, time then yeah um you uh, bbc uh, world news and bbc.com have recently published a study on apec news co- consumers um one of the results coming out of it was 71 percent of australian news consumers are concerned about fake news now fake news seems to be the latest buzzword that everyone's concerned with but i was talking to wikimedia's um ceo Catherine mayhar and she was like fake news has always been around it's just got different labels would you agree with that or would you say it's more of a concern now that's a that's a really good question of course the manipulation of media and publicly available news information has been a feature you know as long as there have been newspapers there's been a concern about that Um, But I think we're living through an era of unprecedented change because of the nature of the digital nature of our world. And I think the the, the key thing that's happened is that the digital news distribution model has lowered the barrier of entry very, very low indeed into the news business. So previously, you'd probably have to spend tens of millions, a hundred millions of dollars to acquire newspapers, uh, TV channels, radio stations. Digital now means that anyone can enter the news publishing game, even if they don't have an established set of values and experience behind that, and they can pass off what they're doing as news. And I think the, the, the fake news issue is, part, is a lot to do with that. It's to do with the fact that it's very, very easy for someone now to set up a website that appears to be a news site but isn't. Um, and that has led to a kind of fragmentation in the market and a, and a lack of consensus around what, you know, what consists really, really reliable news. Now, in, actually, we think this is quite good for our line of business because we, we know that people trust the BBC News brand more than any other. We know that, for example, in this market, that Australians are concerned about fake news. And when they see one of the things that our value of news research pointed out was when people see news in a digital feed, they often go to an established news brand to kind of second source it and double check what they've heard and read. So we find, for example, in this market that Australians might well come to BBC News to check out a story that they're already aware of. You know, they might actually hear the breaking news on BBC if they had our news alerts or, or whatever, but they certainly would come to BBC News to say, OK, what would a really trusted source like BBC News tell us about the latest event from the Trump White House or the Afghan uh, suicide bomb explosion? And they they would, you know, value coming to the BBC as that second source. And that's a perfectly good position for us to be in, actually. You know, we're not primarily here to super serve a domestic Australian market, as I said at the start of mm. this interview. 
actually being being a second source of information but a go-to destination for international news is a really good space for us to be in and I think concern over fake news the BBC is really well placed to address that. Sure something that I find um, you know after such big uh, news events like say the Manchester bombing or the London Bridge attack recently there is a lot of fake news that comes out and what I've found um, news organizations doing is making these short video clips about you know be aware of these fake news thing which really serves their purpose in terms of you know really informing the audience about what's wrong what's right is that something that BBC is going uh, taking more of a conscious effort to do would you be publishing news articles that say okay this is fake news so be aware of this yeah there are two separate issues here you know there is a there's confusion around breaking news which has always been with us and the BBC is always very careful not to publish things that we're not completely sure about and while we want to reflect the kind of emerging uh, you know sort of emerging truth around breaking news stories we'll always be cautious to say actually this isn't confirmed this is a local report we de- we can't confirm this but when we can confirm the authoritative version of events we will I think the fake news issue is slightly different isn't it because it's about the deliberate manipulation of news for you know essentially malign purposes and it covers a variety of different situations so there are people publishing fake news sites simply for commercial gain they're doing a click farming you know operation where they're just trying to get advertised it's an it's an it's an element of ad fraud but it's essentially you know a commercial operation there's also um, poli- highly political and politicised content masquerading as news, which is in fact kind of comment and advocacy and political activism. Uh, and we see a lot of those political sites in our domestic political campaign, you know, springing up around particular candidates and parties. And they're saying, oh, you know, no, we, we're actually as valid as the mainstream media, but we just sort of share a particular political set of values. And then there's a third type, which is much the most malign, I think, which is kind of sovereign governments and state actors using very very well organized and financed fake news specifically to destabilize regions or specific conflicts or to escalate tensions in a particular area and i think that's the category of fake news that most governments are most worried about and i think the bbc's got a really important role in sort of calling out those kinds of stories when we see them we know that falsehoods are being peddled Mm. Fake news is um, usually associated with clickbaits because obviously everyone's looking for unique browsers and, you know, the time spent on a website to sell to advertisers. And Facebook and Google is usually called out for taking the advertising money. How does that affect your operations and the areas that you look after? It is a, it's a big issue in this industry, right? And the BBC is in a slightly different position because we are unashamedly in the premium section of the market. So actually, um, sort of raw click browser number data is not really our, our, uh, an issue for us. You know, we've got very large viewership numbers, but it's the quality and the duration of interaction and the quality of those, those clicks that really counts for us. Plus, we're very explicitly posting our content, our web content and, and the TV content in the premium space. And that's why the kind of most trusted values around the news brand fit very well with premium advertisers who want to produce partner content with us or want to do spots and dots of programmatic advertising okay so that you know we're not we're not suffering as acutely as some other providers because we're not in that just raw race for clicks on the wider point you make about google and facebook you know there is this concern in the industry about this the so-called duopoly and i think there is a problem with the the way the industry is structured at the moment which is that the returns the kind of commercial returns for content 
are not across the industry filtering back to the content generators enough. So plurality in the in the media market is really important. It's really important that that purely commercial and smaller independent operators are able to make enough money out of producing content to sustain themselves. And although this is not as acute a problem for the BBC because the BBC will always have a significant publicly funded public service UK based operation behind it, we we share the concerns of other people in the industry, which is that there does have to be a longer-term transformation where the majority of the commercial returns are going back to people who are actually producing the content that people are consuming. And the problem with the system at the moment is that a lot of it, a lot of the returns go to people who purely publish but do not create content. And that's a, that's a really different, you know, that's a big structural change in our industry, right? And it's one that we haven't hasn't finished playing out yet. Sure. I mean, Facebook is often called out like a scapegoat saying that it's taking a lot of publishers' money. But in terms of BBC's case, would you argue that BBC was better off if Facebook had not existed or Google had not existed? No, I don't, I don't think that at all. I mean, I do think there is a, a significant structural problem in the industry. But, and I think that, you know, some people will always lay elements of blame of that at the, at the door of people, the, the Facebooks and Googles and Apples of this world. But I do think that taking a more positive view, the rise of social distribution and particularly of these third party publishing platforms, you know, Facebook don't see themselves as a news publisher, although others would argue with that, but they are a huge distributor of news and they are reaching audiences who traditional news broadcasters would not necessarily otherwise be able to reach. And that is a good thing because it is growing the user base of international news. Uh, so more people are consuming more of our pro product. Um, the, the difficulty is how do you make that system work fairly in terms of sharing revenues? So I think on a, on a sort of purely number of consumers base, the existence of those social, of news aggregator sites, of third party distribution sites, of really powerful social media players is a good thing. What hasn't worked out yet is a sort of fair distribution model that can continue to sustain plurality in media. And that is a concern for everyone operating in this business, I think. Yep. Now, going away from the whole fake news debate and Facebook and Google and giving them less airtime now, you had a um, stint running the newsrooms at BBC World News and you also launched new TV bulletins for like global news like Urdu, Hindi, Swahili. Swahili. Yep. Swahili. Yep. What goes behind launching these new bulletins? That's what I want to know. What's the well, process? Well, it's really interesting because we were talking about third-party distribution there in the digital space, but actually for our language services in World Service Group, we are where we launch new TV bulletins, they are almost invariably distributed by partners on third-party partners in local markets. So, for example, we launched uh, Dira Yudunia, which is the uh, which is the Swahili bulletin that is distributed in a couple of different Swahili markets in East Africa on partner stations. The Hindi daily news bulletin that we make is broadcast on a partner Hindi station in the Indian market, uh, because our kind of multi our, our multi regional platform is the English platform. We have a TV platform on BBC World News, but that's the English language platform. So we are very reliant and indeed we welcome and share with partners right around the world these new TV products. So 
how we launch them is really we look for a gap in the market. We say, okay, you know, where we're launching the new services from the new investment we have at the moment. So we've just launched um, new Somali TV for Somalia. So we say, okay, there's a really clear gap in that market. There's a news need and audience who don't have access to really quality international news in the in in their local languages. Then we find the right partner who will host and redistribute the content for us. And then in the world service model, we make the content and we essentially give it away. You know, that's part of our public service mission. Um, so a lot of it is to do with understanding local and national audiences as well as international audiences but making sure that we can present the news in a format that's really, really interesting to audiences in those markets and then working specifically in those languages to make sure that they thrive and prosper. So it's a really, you know, uh, this is the first tranche of these new services which I helped launch uh, around five years ago. But if you look at what we're doing now, we are increasingly launching new TV daily bulletins in vernacular language markets and we are almost exclusively reliant on partners to distribute them for us. Right. Um, now, I know you still describe yourself as a journalist, but you are in a management position. Do you miss chasing stories? Um, yeah, a bit. Of course I do. Uh, I mean, I think there was, there, there was sort of moments where I, I think when the, the UK general election was called, um, I was working in Japan. We, we we're doing a lot of work in Asia this year, and I was in Japan. Uh, I was actually doing an interview with a, with an, a, a different publication in Japan when my news alert went off and said that Theresa May had called that snap election. And in that moment, obviously, you feel the kind of thrill of breaking news in your own country. Just as a consumer, as a journalist, you think, gosh, it's going to be a really exciting period, right? Um, but no, I, I, you know, I spent a long time running daily news programs in the UK uh, on the domestic news side. And I've always had a huge interest in our international operations. And I did miss it when I wasn't doing it. And I was keen to return to it in this role because I think everyone who works at the BBC feel, sees our international news mission as a really important part of what we do. It's one of those jobs where you don't really have to think about why you're getting out of bed to go to work in the morning. You know, it's a kind of vocational part of your job where you really believe in what you're doing. And um, just the variety of different markets we work in. So, I've, you know, as I say, I've been in, you know, Singapore, in, in Tokyo, I've been in uh, India, in the United States, uh, here in Australia, just in the first six months in this role. And having that huge variety of audiences and wanting to learn more about each different market is just a really, really exciting part of this job. So I enjoy it very much. So clearly one of the perks is travelling. Yeah, it, well, it, it is a perk. <laughs> but anyone who travels a lot for work will tell you that it feels like a perk for a bit. And then after a while, it's, you know, it brings its associated difficulties. So I'm struggling a bit with the Australian daytime, nighttime. It's now, I think it's about 11 o'clock at night at the UK. So I'm feeling, a, feeling it a bit. But well, uh, <laughs> well, I'm very thankful that you're sleepy, yet you're here talking to me. Jamie, thank you so much for your time it was great picking your brain a little bit and ha i hope you have a lovely stay here in australia brilliant it's really nice to meet you and thanks very much for giving me the time to talk about what we do thank you thank you so much that was another media week podcast do check us out online at mediaweek.com.au and follow us on social on facebook and twitter at media week aus